And if you're free after church today, there will be, I don't know how many people will go, maybe 20 people will show up at the restaurant in Lakewood, and uh, you're invited. So certainly hope that you'll come and meet some new people. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. You ready? We know from last week that Jesus has cast out a demon from a man who was blind and mute. After he does it, the Pharisees accuse him of being in league with the devil. They said he's doing this by the power of Satan. And uh, Jesus contradicts them. And so in Matthew 12, verse 27, Jesus said this, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore you be the judges. Jesus says he hasn't done anything by demons. And then he says in verse 27, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and that's really what's happened, then surely, notice the word surely, the kingdom of God, there's no doubt about it, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then, of course, they don't agree with that, and Jesus says they're right on the right on the cusp, right on the edge, right on the verge of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by attributing to Satan that which is done by the power of God. And then Jesus says in verse 37, he says to them in response, by your words you will be justified, found righteous, or by your words you will be condemned. This is a really tense type of uh, encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And now, we pick up at verse 38 and we see how they respond. And look what they say. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now think about how ridiculous that is. Uh, why would you want him to do another miracle when the previous miracle he just did, you said he did by the power of Satan? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. And if the first miracle didn't convince them that the kingdom of God had arrived, why would we expect the second miracle to convince them that the kingdom of God had arrived? Uh, their request is no more sincere than Pharaoh's request when he asked Moses to do a sign. Remember that? Show us a sign! Then we'll believe! Of course, that doesn't produce any belief. And so, uh, remember verse 37? He said, by your words you'll either be justified or by your words you'll be condemned. These are words that condemn them. Because they're not sincere and they reveal the true nature of their heart. So now we look at Jesus' response in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it. Jesus isn't going to play their game. He's not in the miracle on the demand business. <laughs> a lot of people just think, you know, you could demand the miracle of Jesus, and he would just sort of say, Well, your wish is my command. <laughs> And he's not in that business. He says, no miracle will be done for you. Uh, the fact that uh, they demand a sign, another one, is a, a sign of their unbelief, isn't it? They didn't believe the first one. 
You know, if he could do another ten, do you think they'd believe it? They'd do how many more would they want? Ten more. Yeah, they want one more, and then after that one, they'd want one more, and then after that one, they would want one more. So he says, no sign will be given you. Now notice how he characterizes them in verse 39. He calls them adulterous. Look, an adulterous generation. In the Old Testament, that referred to uh, people who were idolatrous. <clears throat> they were uh, having a relationship, an adulterous relationship with other gods. They didn't believe in the one true and living God. These are people who were not keeping the covenant with God. He calls them, in verse 39, an evil generation. Have you seen that word before? Evil generation? Evil? Look back at verse 34. Brood of vipers? How can you being look? Evil. You see that? Look down at verse 35. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good fruit, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things, and guess what they're doing? They're asking for a sign, and guess what that is? That is an evil thing. He says that an adulterous and an evil generation seeks after a sign. And so that's what's happening here. So Jesus refuses to perform another miracle. Now look at the end of verse 39. It says, No miracle will be given you, no sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he's referring to his death and his resurrection. This is the first reference that Jesus makes in Matthew's Gospel uh, where he predicts his death. And that he'll be in the ground for three days and he'll be raised. And he relates it to Jonah. Now you know the story of Jonah. How Jonah has been told to go to Nineveh and preach. And he instead he ends up going to Joppa, a coastal town. And he gets a ticket for Tarshish. God says go to Nineveh. And he says, a ticket to Tarshish please. Opposite direction. And then what happens? He's on the boat. Storm hits. Looks like the boat's going to sink. The pagan sailor said, the gods must be mad at us. Somebody on the boat must be causing it to rock like this. Who is it? Ah, Jonah. So they throw him overboard. And what happens? The fish grabs him and he stays in the belly three days and three nights. And then spits him out and Jonah has a second chance. And he goes to Nineveh. And the whole place is converted. There's a great revival to take place. So Jesus says, that's the sign that I'm going to give. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And playing off of that incident, he gives an example of faith. Look what he says in verse 41. Example number one of faith versus their unbelief. Example number one. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation, that's the evil generation, and condemn it. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment, that means on the judgment day, with this generation and condemn it. Why will they condemn it? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. When Jonah preached, they responded. They didn't ask for a sign, did they? Did the Ninevites say, Jonah won't believe if you give us a sign? 
They believed, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The preaching alone brought about repentance. What are these people doing? Are they repenting at the preaching of Jesus? Do they show faith? No, they do the opposite. They want a sign. This indicates their unbelief. And so, in the resurrection, the judgment day, this group here will rise up and they will condemn the Pharisees and all the leaders of this generation. In fact, what really makes this condemnation so bad is that these people who repented at the preaching of Jonah were all Gentiles. Even the Gentiles repent. And here's a group of Jews, Jesus' own kind. He came into his own, and his own did what? Received him not. So, I mean, that's a condemnation when a prophet comes and Gentiles repent, and your own people don't repent. When you preach, and look what he says at the end of verse 41. And a greater than Jonah. So what should have been their response? They too should have repented, right? But no, they reject the message of Jesus and the Ninevites are going to shame them and condemn them. Now example number two of faith. Look at this. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And this is talking about the Queen of Sheba when she came to meet King uh, King Solomon. And her story is found over in 1 Kings chapter 10. I wanted you to turn there because a lot of times we hear of the Queen of Sheba and we don't think about really story. And it's a short little story and I thought that would be worth looking at. So it's in 1 Kings chapter 10. And uh, we're going to just read through it quickly without any comment. And uh, if you've never read the story, you'll you'll enjoy it. 1 Kings chapter 10. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, notice that's what she has heard about Solomon. He's, He's operating in the name of the Lord. That's the God of Israel. She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And so Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, meaning the dynasty that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. Her attitude changed. She, she just said, she just said, ah, she just gave up when she saw this guy and all that he had done. And then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I didn't believe the words until I came and I saw with my own eyes, and indeed, half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants, who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. 
Blessed, look what she says, this queen from a foreign country. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has, has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. That's a lot. Spices in great quantity. <coughs> precious stones. There never again came an abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now, that's her story. <clears throat> now, that's the illustration that Jesus uses of faith. He says, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation, that's the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who reject him, and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. Now, when she gets there, does she ask for a sign? She asks for a miracle? She hears about this guy and his wisdom, and guess what she does? She goes to any extent necessary to get under his teaching. And when she hears it, she's just overwhelmed, and she just proclaims the God of Israel to be the one true and living God. To what extent does she take? Do you hear this? She travels a very distance. But you know what? We're talking about a great distance. She's a Gentile. And here's a Gentile who heard this Jew preach and his wisdom. She accepted his word and bowed the knee to the God of Israel. On the great judgment day, when everyone is raised, her testimony will be a condemnation to this evil generation. And look what he says at the end of verse 42. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. <coughs> and yet, they reject Jesus and his message. Now, <clears throat> Jesus tells a parable in verse 43. And here's what he says. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man and goes through dry places, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then that demon spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now this links, this links back to verse 22. Where there was brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man, blind and mute. And he healed the man so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And he exercises the demon out of the man. Now here's a follow-up to that. He talks about the demon going out goes in the dry places, says, finally gets restless, I'm going to go back there, goes back, finds the man's body empty, takes seven more, and the man's worse off than he was to begin with. Okay? Now, when you look at this little parable right here, and it's thrown in the middle of Jesus' greater teaching, this parable is about much more. Listen very carefully. This is a parable. Okay? It's a story, right? A parable. And I teach my students how to interpret parables. And most people don't know how to interpret parables. 
this parable is about much more than that man who had a demon exercised from him. When Jesus says a parable, tells a parable, what's he usually talking about? Is he just talking about the person in the parable? What's he usually talking about? That he's telling a story because it, he wants to relate it to who? Huh? Yeah, to, to his audience, to the nation of Israel. Remember, that's how he does things. There was a man, you know, who had a bunch of these. He says, and this, this is what this generation is like. This is what the parable is. This parable is about much more than a literal exorcism. Okay? While the exorcism in verse 22 was real, we know that was real, okay? uh, this is a parable, and it's not about a man being delivered. The parable is not about a man being delivered from a demon. It's about a nation being delivered from bondage. Here is Israel under the oppression of the Roman Empire and Satan who's behind that throne. And Jesus is coming and he's preaching repentance and he says, join the kingdom of God. So he's offering them freedom from all of that. Uh, so the kingdom, in a sense, is broken in. When Jesus uh, exercises this demon out of this man, it shows that the kingdom of God is broken in and, and God's doing something and Israel can be set free. The whole nation can be set free. Uh, but they have to come under the reign of God. What happens, however, if Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God and calls them to come under the reign of God, and initially they say, well, I think we might do that, but uh, they don't replace the power of Satan over them with, by coming under the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't do that. Instead, they reject the Holy Spirit. If you do that, then your deliverance is very temporary. And you'll be worse off than you were before. Let me tell you something. What Jesus is saying is, when I came on the scene, you were in bad shape. After you heard the truth and you rejected me, guess what? You're seven times worse off than you were before. That's what this parable is actually talking about. So this isn't so much about a demon. This parable right here is not so much about a demon-possessed man as a demon-possessed nation. It's going to be far worse off if they reject Jesus. That's the lesson. How do I know that? Because look what he says at the end of verse 45. So it also shall be with this what? Wicked generation. He's talking about the nation. So you're going to be far worse off if you reject this ministry and this message that I have. So, well, who is God's people then? If these people aren't, this wicked, evil generation, who, who is part of the kingdom of God? Who is part of God's family? Okay, let's find out. It's not enough just to be Jewish. Not enough to have Abraham as your father. Trace your ancestry back to Abraham. So let's find out. Look at verse 46. So while he was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. Then one, one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now why are they there? Why do his mothers and his brothers show up at this point? Well, we know from Mark's Gospel, they think that he's out of his mind, it says. Mark chapter 3 says, They came there because they thought he was out of his mind. His mom and his brothers say, She thinks he's the Messiah. Jesus thinks he's the Messiah. We need to take him home. 
That's why they're there. And so that report is given to him in verses 46 and 47. Then look at verse 48, look how Jesus responds. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Well, who is my mother? Let me ask you a question. Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? That's a good question. That's a question we all need to ask. Who is my mother? And who is my brothers? And then look at verse 49. And he stretched out his hands toward his what? Disciples. His mothers and brothers are outside, and guess where he points? Over here to his disciples. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. He ignores his physical mothers and his brothers. You know why? Because they're part of the evil generation. They're rejecting Jesus and his message at this point. Even Mary. Can you believe that? Even Mary at this point. She had him by virgin birth. But guess what? Her mind has been so corrupted by these brothers of his who are jealous of him and think he's out of his mind that even she's going along with it at this point. So he says, well, and the thing he doesn't even talk to them. <laughs> he, he never mentions one word to his physical mothers and brothers. He's, he just ignores them. They're standing there waiting for him, and he starts, he talks to the crowd. He says, well, who is my Can you imagine them? They're standing there, and then maybe they're looking in the window. And he says, well, who is my mother? And he points to his disciples. He says, there's my mother, this is my brother. Some of you know what that's like. Where you have more in common with people in this room than you have with your physical family. They don't understand you. They think you're crazy. Why would you give 10% of your income or more to a church? You know, if you make it 100000 a year, 50000 a year, say 50000 you gave 5000 away, you did that for 40 years, you know, that's a quarter of a million bucks nearly. And with interest over those 40 years, guess how much you got? You got a lot. Why would you ever do that? You'd be nuts. They don't understand what you're doing. But others do, don't they? So Jesus says, who is my mothers and brothers? Here they are, and he points to his disciples, and he gives an explanation. Look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, is my brother, my sister, and my mother. It's not limited. Notice there, whosoever. Do you see that? You see the whosoever? Not limited to the apostles, is it? Whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven. What's his will? The teaching that you've seen in Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, keeping the law the way Jesus interprets it. Repenting of your sins. Okay. And notice that Jesus adds a word there in verse 50. See the word sister? See that? They, he didn't say sister before, did he? Now he had sisters. The kingdom is open as fully to women as it is to men. That's what makes Jesus' message totally different than any other message of his day. Women were not second-class citizens. They were third-class citizens of the Roman Empire. But in Jesus' kingdom, women are accepted as fully as men. Full-time citizens. And so the kingdom of God has arrived. It comes in the person of Jesus. It's broken in. You see the power. And if you reject it, reject Jesus and his message, then you miss out on the kingdom. And Nineveh will one day rise up against you, and the Queen of Sheba will rise up against you and condemn you because you're part of an evil generation. Now I'm going to show you something.
very interesting as we finish up. Look at verse 6 of chapter 12. Now I want you to look at the end of verse 6. End of verse 6. One, talking about Jesus, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the what? The temple. Jesus is greater than the temple. That means Jesus is greater than the priesthood. Jesus is the great high priest. He's greater than the Jewish priesthood. Look at verse, into verse 39. Or the end of verse 41, I guess it is. End of verse 41. Indeed, there's a greater than what? Jonah here. What was Jonah? He was a prophet. <laughs> There's a greater prophet. There's a greater priest. That's Jesus. There's a greater prophet. That's Jesus. And then look at the end of verse 42. There's one greater than who? And what is he? He's a king. Jesus is the priest, the prophet, and the king. God's ultimate priest, God's ultimate prophet, and God's ultimate king. There's nothing more than ultimate Jesus fulfills all the requirements for being the Messiah. If you miss Jesus, and you say He's not representing God, He's not God's representative through the power of the Holy Spirit, then you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You reject the only means of salvation, and you miss out, and on the day of judgment, you'll be condemned with all the rest of the evil generations throughout history. And the next week, starting in chapter 13, we have a whole series of parables. It's parable, 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 parable. And you'll see every parable in the whole of chapter 13 are parables of the kingdom of God. What the kingdom of God is like. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you that we can uh, look at a passage like this and we can see how it all fits together. How this entire chapter 12 fits together. It's uh, a pivotal chapter. It's one where we're called to make a decision one where we're left without the ability to sit on the fence. Either we're with Jesus or we're against Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to, uh, to realize that Jesus indeed is the priest, the prophet, the king. He's your representative on earth. The Messiah. Thank you Lord for our, our spiritual family who stand with us and understand us. Help us Lord to be positive witnesses for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.